The planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something there beyond the realm of man And until you thoroughly tested every last post-justed view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Sayers Where would we be without THC? Hallelujah and hello, higher side chatters. Drinking a little drink, smoking a little smoke, and doing the damn thing from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and today is a pretty unique episode, even for us. And I think it's going to get a lot of gears turning out there in people's heads on subjects they might not think about all that much or even consider under the conspiracy umbrella. So it's a fun one. But we did have some sound issues early on, and big thanks to Connor. He is a great sport, sticking around for an hour while I fiddle with knobs and dials just trying to appease the tech gods, and then recording a two-hour show with me. That is a commitment, folks. But anyway, this show is a bit stitched together from a few different source files, but I don't think you'll notice, but I did have to say something. Also, Connor's breath is pretty loud at first, but we straightened that out too. Content-wise, like I said, unique show, and I enjoy trying to push the envelope if you haven't figured that out by now. Also, it's always great hearing from people who have led interesting, non-cookie-cutter lives, and Connor fits that bill for sure. He's a thoughtful guy with a deep understanding of many topics and sort of sits Lotus-style in the Venn diagram between the occult and sexuality, and that's an interesting place to be. Some of his positions on sexual freedom are pretty bold, and I'm curious how the crowd will react. There's always a bit of conservatism in conspiracy, even if I don't own that. I definitely recognize it, especially around topics like sexuality. But sometimes I wonder if maybe we aren't policing and judging and shaming ourselves a little too much, based on the training we've gotten or the residue from authorities, religious and otherwise. I think most of us can see or at least entertain how our thoughts and attitudes about sex can be and are manipulated and over-legislated and used against us. And we probably should examine that. Really, as long as nobody gets hurt, go wild, right? To each their own. And I think we all want people to be as free and open and comfortable as they can be, as they want to be, in all areas of life. And we definitely don't need the government making laws about what we can do with our own bodies. I think that applies to drugs, sex, magic, and suicide, to be honest. And even that's a radical idea, I guess. But it is your body, right? Or is it? That's a whole other show entirely. But I apologize for the sound issues you might notice. But like the Newt Man in Mining Python and the Holy Grail, it gets better. And without further delay, let's play them in, Charlie. Sexuality and Steiner, esoterica and erotica, oppression and orgasms. And Connor Habib on the other side. It's the Higher Side Chats podcast, but you can call it THC. Always talking fringe ideas, digging up conspiracies. Stuff they don't want you to know, it's the stuff we want to see. That's life here on the Higher Side. It's the place for me, it's my favorite show, where the guests are great, and my mind gets blown, the higher side, love the higher side, raise your glass and toast to Carlwood, the host, on the higher side chat show. 
right, Hireside Chatters, we have seen, heard, and in some lucky cases even experienced enough to know there's more to this world than just what we can see, yet we're still constantly bombarded with mainstream materialist mouthpieces telling us their model for reality is the only acceptable option for an intelligent person. Well, we've explored many of the ways this worldview serves the power elite by making the masses feel insignificant and small, and many times we've followed the long campaigns that eliminated schools of thought that promoted self-development, higher consciousness, and even engagement with the other. Though it's not just esoteric areas that are often manipulated by authorities, but all freedoms. And whether we're talking about the occult, psychedelics, or even sexuality, the long-repeating pattern of history is full-scale suppression and constant state-sponsored reminders that any of these things capable of elevating a person beyond feelings of helpless servitude will not be tolerated. We'll throw off those chains, people, and pry those minds wide open, because in a fairly diverse and far-reaching show today, we're going to look deep into how Western attitudes about sexuality have served the masters. We're going to be exploring anthroposophy, examining some great thinkers and sex radicals of history, and detailing the relationship between sex and the occult. And I don't know anyone better suited to facilitate that journey than today's guest, Connor Habib. Connor is an award-winning writer, teacher, and gay porn star for good measure, Maybe the only man to receive prestigious honors in all three categories, the true trifecta in life if you ask me. Also, his essays have appeared all over the internet, he's lectured all over the country, he's well versed in the occult and has appeared on some of my favorite podcasts including the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, Tangentially Speaking with Chris Ryan, and of course Rune Soup with Gordon White. Let it be known that Connor and Gordon will be putting on the Chaotic Good, Why the Occult Matters Now More Than Ever event in L.A. on July 8th, and I can't wait to get this show started. The host of the newest web series, Against Everyone with Connor Habib, the only guest so far whose dick I've seen on Twitter, Connor, my man, welcome to the higher side. Hey, I can't believe none of those other guys have put dick pics on Twitter. I'm pretty <laughs> pretty disappointed in them. How you doing? <laughs> I can't complain, man. I can't complain. I'm really psyched to be doing this. This is going to be an interesting one. Yeah, me too. I always like getting into the minds and ideas of alternative thinkers throughout history, like Rudolf Steiner and his anthroposophy philosophy, which I know you've studied quite a lot. And I've also been thinking more deeply about how sexuality ties into oppressive rulership, which I really hadn't previously. But to grease these wheels, let's start by talking about that event you are doing with our mutual friend, Mr. White. Very rare to have him in California. And this thing you guys got going on seems like it's going to be a great time. I think I've heard a joke that starts like this, but I guess it could be described as a chaos magician, a porn star, and a mortician walk into a bar, right? Yeah, and the mortician <laughs> to which you refer is Caitlin Doty, who wrote the best New York Times bestselling book, uh, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, which is about her time uh, working at a crematorium, and she's a death rights expert. She does a YouTube series called Ask a Mortician. She's going to be moderating the event, and there will also be tarot readings by Rachel True, who is one of the witches from The Craft. Um, so it's it's going to be a dope event. I'm really excited, and just for Gordon and I to sort of go deep on things that you know we get to talk about on RuneSuit, but we don't really get to do in any other public forum, at least not yet. And for L.A., I think an event like this is just really good for the timeline of L.A. L.A. is like a really sort of occulty, mystical, weirdo city with all these different kinds of time eras crammed at once together. So I think that this will sort of raise the magical consciousness of the city, hopefully. Or um, if not, people just get drunk, you know, <laughs> or both. Right on. Yeah, cheers to that. And 
Yeah, dude, it sounds like it's going to be a great event. I'm really hoping I can make it up there, but that's a really busy week for me. Uh, it's when a lot of my out-of-town wedding guests start arriving. But either way, it sounds like a blast. And so to get into the meat here, not, you know, no pun intended, I wanted to discuss sexuality pretty early on because it is largely a conspiracy show that I run here. And I've been thinking about just how thorny a topic sex is for most of the conspiracy world. We think about eyes wide shut parties and mansion orgies, and we might start to get a little nervous about these things because of that association. Plus, conservatism has a strong thread running through the conspiracy world. I haven't always identified with it, but it's definitely there. And I understand those feelings a little bit, but I wanted to read something that you wrote that really was a light bulb moment for me. In one of your articles, you say, the war on sex is the oldest and most oppressive war on consciousness. Sex and sexuality are intimately, totally linked to our freedom of thought and expression. That's why so many repressive regimes are sex negative, jail sex workers and sex minorities, especially homosexuals, and monitor sexual behavior. It's also why, if we want to change the world in a radical way, it's important to look to sex for some answers. And I just think that is very true, but something I definitely don't think about often. Can you maybe elaborate on those ideas and why sex is so important when it comes to the idea of control versus freedom? Yeah, I mean, I think people have been, people in institutions of power have been trying to regulate and interfere with our sex lives for a really, really long time. And Unfortunately, the way that plays out in sort of conservative currents is the idea that somehow there's this kind of liberal progressive government that's trying to enforce a kind of libertine sexual agenda that's eroding our morality and all that kind of stuff. But we have to realize that this war on sex has been put on basically everybody in a different way, in different cultures, in different times, and that nobody has escaped it. And so when we start talking about how power interacts with us and our sexuality, we need to just look at um, our own lives and see what kinds of prejudices and brainwashing and all that kind of stuff has gone on. It's not a particular agenda for a specific sexuality. It's a sort of generalized overall control tactic of people in power to regulate everybody's sexuality at all times and the kinds of sex we have, the kinds of sexual imagery we're allowed to view, if any, the kinds of things we're allowed to talk about, all that sort of stuff. So everybody, everybody's a target, basically, I would say. Yeah, I don't disagree with you, man. And it does seem like freedoms spill out into other areas once your mindset changes. And so you have to attack it all. It has to be full spectrum dominance. I mean, we talk a lot about the 60s and the psychedelic movement on this show, but sexual freedom was just as big a part of the 60s. And I guess when liberation does come in one area, it spills out into others, which would be why it's all off limits from the perspective of a ruling authority. You can do a lot to keep marijuana, mushrooms, and dimethyltryptamine away from people, but you can't really take away their sex organs. You can just shame them, cover up the women, and outlaw anything but the vanilla stuff, I guess. But it is important to examine. Yeah, and so the way I put it is, if you ever want to know how somebody feels about freedom, start talking about sex. That's like one of my sort of big off-repeated lines when I give talks and stuff, <laughs> because basically sexual freedom is individual freedom. Everybody has a different sexuality. We talk as if there's like, well, there's gay people and there's straight people, and maybe if bisexual people exist, that's there too. But actually, in fact, all our sexualities are completely unique to us. Everybody has a sort of different 
nexus of things and, and complexes also of things that we eroticize, things that repulse us, things that do both eroticize and repulse us that draw us in. Our, our whole desire complex is different from person to person. And so when you start talking and, and, and beyond that, it's also not really understandable by other people. Let me explain what I mean by that in really mundane terms. If you, if you've ever been walking down the street with someone, a friend, and they point out some woman that they think is hot, you know, and you like look at her and you're like, her? Are you kidding me? Like, she's gross, you know, and your friend's like, no, that's the hottest person in the world. What are you talking about, right? Mm. Our our desires are actually not even really understandable or translatable to each other. It's very difficult to sort of merge into someone else's sexuality or sort of erotic life. It's the same thing with sexual acts. I mean, people like all kinds of different things, you know? And so you can see on an individual case-by-case basis, people are very, very different and it's very unique. And so if you want to talk about individual freedom and what kinds of um, compassion and freedom we should offer up to others as well as ourselves, sex is a really good place to start because it is, I believe, the most individual thing about us. Yeah. I think that that's that sort of war on the individual in some way because if everybody starts – um, sort of self-actualizing or realizing their sexualities and we start permitting that in other people, then we have a bunch of people who are individuals um, accepting and responding to individual consciousness walking around. And that's a big problem for people in power. Yeah, well said. And I think there's also a perception that a lot of these modern sex laws that we still have on the books are just silliness. They'll say, sure, sodomy is illegal, but it's just one of those archaic things nobody pays attention to. And not to get too heavy, but that is just not true because I only learned recently that my mom grew up with a brother that I never knew about who was gay and actually had a cop invite him out on a fishing trip only to entrap him, charge him with sodomy. Then he was sent to a mental institution where he was given electroshock therapy until he was driven to suicide. And I never knew these things about this guy in my family. And, you know, I'm not super connected to it. But when I think about the pain that that caused my mom and her life, mm. it makes me want to rage, man. And these dumb laws around sexuality actually ruin lives a lot easier than we might think at first, because none of that would have been possible if it weren't for that initial law in the books that made sodomy illegal. Okay. So I think that that story that you just told is a really tragic instance of these kinds of things intersecting with your life and your experience and people you know. In fact, there are so many different variations of this kind of shit where um, sex laws, sex legislation is used against people in one way or another. But it's not just the laws. It's also the cultural pressures. So, for instance – you know, you, you talk a lot about conspiracies, sexual scandals, sexual things that are sort of under the surface on your show. Mm -hmm. And imagine if those things were happening in a culture that was much more open and able to engage and discuss sex. What kind of power would we have to unearth and discuss those kinds of scandals and really like take people to power to task because it was already in the air that we we're having healthy sexual discussions and allowing people more sexual freedom, sexual understanding, sexual education. Right now, it's like it's difficult to even talk about those kinds of sex scandals because we're not even really talking about sex that much, you know. So that's that's one version, and we can come back to that because I'm sure that's of in, of interest to the people that are listening to the show. But also think about the ways in which 
um, you know, sexual imagery is really regulated in the sense of, you know, there are so many laws and regulations around what kind of sexual imagery you can see, how we access pornography. Pornography can only be filmed legally, technically, in two states in the entire country. And yet, advertisement is a complete eroticization, you know, constantly. Yeah. It's like, look, these two people are about to have sex. Now buy this computer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's it, because sex is repressed. The people who are making advertisements, trying to sell us shit, trying to turn us into sort of obedient consumers, they get to utilize arousing us and then frustrating our arousal by directing it into buying a product. That's another way in which sex and sexual repression is leveraged to get people money, to get people in power, to, to basically have more money and power over us and to continue the sort of spell and cycle of repression. So I think that there's all that kind of stuff. Then there's even crazier stuff when we talk about the laws, like you were talking about with your friend. So I am friends with lots of people who do sexological work, who are sex therapists, that kind of stuff. So I hear stories, obviously, uh, anonymously about, you know, people that they've worked with. But I know, for instance, a story of a guy who was driving and pulled his car over to an empty parking lot to jerk off in his car pretty innocuous thing, right? I mean, he pulled into an empty lot, nobody was there, and you know, trying to be responsible so he's not jerking off and driving at the same time, which is dangerous, right? Right. Some some woman in a building that was all the way on the other side of the lot who was in a window a few floors up looked down and saw him jerking off in the car, called the police, he was arrested and is now branded as a sex offender for the rest of his life. For what? For doing basically nothing. I mean, these kinds of laws are sort of, they're, they're crazy and they happen and they take place because we don't have the kinds of sexual discussion that we need. And so we allow these kinds of laws or the kinds of methods of control I was talking about or the kinds of scandals I was talking about to take place because the open discussion and the sort of uh, understanding of individual freedoms is not taking place. Right. I do think sex offender status for life is a little extreme, but broadly speaking, we're talking about openness and freedom among adults who are willing participants. I don't know about that example, but yeah, this is a thorny issue. I don't want to see people imposed upon by things like urinating and jacking off in public, but at the same time, it's not so bad to be a little uncomfortable, and we shouldn't let it be a justification for the system hoovering up more people who's whole life trajectory will be affected and the system's going to be as strict as we let it be. And something like the sex offender registry has such weight to it. We really should reserve its usage for predatory behavior only and maybe separate out cases of poor judgment from that. Of course, another backwards problem in this area is young kids texting each other naked pictures, something done usually out of childhood curiosity in a system with laws meant to protect kids And they're actually facing charges for possessing child pornography, apparently. And we have to restore a little context to what a real crime is. So the laws need to catch up, and we also need to reserve better judgment in applying such harsh punishments. But to some people out there, it might sound like some of this gets a little close to defending sex criminals. And I hope the distinction is pretty clear. Well, yeah. I mean, first I want to point out that those laws you're talking about where kids who send each other pictures of themselves and have sexual interaction with other kids because that's what you do when you're in high school. Obviously, you're going through intense hormonal change, so you're horny all the time and you're interacting with other people your age, and yet now that can be a sex offense. 
And there are laws replacing those old archaic laws. So even if we have like, ho, ho, the sodomy law is not affecting that many people, and it is affecting some people, as you pointed out, there are new, uh, newly archaic, I will call them laws, <laughs> that are taking place, taking the place of those old archaic laws, right? So that's, that's the first thing to know. So we shouldn't laugh at those archaic ones because they're just being sort of replaced by these other kinds of things that are very similar. Um, when you talk about people being like, oh, we don't, you know, we don't want to talk about this because it sounds like we're sort of permitting abuse or whatever. First, I want to say, why do our minds go there right away? <laughs> why, when I talk about sexual freedom, suddenly people start thinking about, oh, yes, but what about people who aren't consenting? It's like, why, what, wh why did we jump from what I was talking about to, non-consensual sexual assault immediately <laughs> it should be a no-brainer right <laughs> exactly we, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be making that leap immediately in our heads and the fact that we do indicates an inner problem the second thing is you know all that stuff about non-consensual sex i think it's of course it's really important for us to explore and discuss and understand all that kind of stuff what's more likely are we going to are, are we going to have better discussions and understandings of what constitutes sexual assault, how to treat victims of sexual assault, and also uh, how to deal with the offenders, rehabilitate the ones that can be rehabilitated and not try to rehabilitate the ones that can't in a culture where we understand and discuss sex openly? Or are we going to do that well in a culture that is completely sexually repressed? <laughs> we, I think we have a better chance of doing all the right things if we start having better understanding discussions about sex. That's why I get sort of I bristle a little bit when people talk about things like satanic ritual abuse, when they talk about stuff like Pizzagate, which I, b before you drag me down into that pizza parlor, I don't know all the specifics <laughs> about. I know, I know, obviously, I know the general story. But when, when people talk about that kind of stuff, it's like, okay, I'm totally down for talking about all of that. But we also need to have a safe, sound grounding of our understanding of sex before we start talking about that kind of stuff. Otherwise, we're going to be importing all kinds of prejudices that aren't worthwhile in bringing to that discussion. And that won't help us heal victims, won't help us apprehend the perpetrators, won't help us deal with with perpetrators once we get a hold of them, and certainly won't have cultural grounding to deal with people, right? It's like, I, you know, I talked about this on a show before on Gramerica, I think, but it's like if Pizzagate style allegations come out, understand, you know, and, like, and they come out as proved or true, understand that the people and institutions in power are immediately going to use that to regulate and control our sex lives. It's not going to be like, it's not going to be some great revelation where we blow the whole thing apart and suddenly the, the whole system collapses. What's going to happen is that the people who already have the power are going to use that to regulate our lives more, our sexualities, our access to pleasure and freedom more. So right. it's really important to keep that in mind. While they just continue to do whatever abuses they may have been doing already. Totally. Yeah. They're above the law. So you know, you're talking about society having a better cultural understanding, a more nuanced understanding of sexuality. What do you think that looks like, a better understanding? And how do you think it would actually change society 
for the better because a lot of people probably have their ideas on what a completely free and open sexed society would look like. Maybe you can uh, calm them down a little bit. What does it look like to you? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the first things is just, you know, not being terrified of your own uncomfortability with certain <laughs> sexual situations. I think this is actually a general rule, not just with sex. Um, in the culture we live in now, the world we live in now, is to be able to hold and understand uncomfortability. So that could be uncomfortability related to other people's sexuality, where it doesn't immediately turn into demonization. You just say, okay, I'm uncomfortable, <laughs> noted. You know, I don't have to act on that uncomfortability. And obviously, I'm not talking about a burning building situation. If you see someone being assaulted or you know that that's happening, like, of course, step in. But again, let's not go there right away. I'm just talking about the things that repulse you, that gross you out, that like freak you out a little bit, that might make you feel uncomfortable. And it could be from the friend saying, oh, that woman's hot and you think she's ugly. Hold back. You don't have to say, you can have what I call good desire etiquette. You don't have to be like gross. You can say something like, what do you find attractive about her? Right. So, um, open up a conversation instead of shutting it down. Do that with yourself as well. When you have a thought like, oh, people like to be pissed on during sex or whatever, instead of thinking that's gross, ask yourself, why do I find that repulsive? Do I really find that repulsive? Mm -hmm. What would happen if I watched someone do that online or, you know, I just like create a safe space for yourself to encounter your uncomfortability because there's so many, there's so much talk about, um, boundaries right now when it comes to sex, which is fine. I think that that's really good and nobody has a right to violate your boundaries. But we also have a duty to investigate our own and to begin to sort of loosen our boundaries up a little bit so we're not constantly – it's like we're not like the Operation board game where if anybody touches the wrong part, we like light up and make a horrible sound. You know, It's like we've got mm -hmm. we, to investigate our own prejudices. So I think that that's a step. Um, that's very safe and easy for us to take, just doing some inner work when it comes to this kind of stuff because – we really think as a culture that sex is just all about chemistry and everything just sort of flowing and being perfect. And that's, that's some shit that people have sold us. You know, that's a marketing plan. That's not what sex usually is. Usually it's like, Oh, like, does this blowjob make me look fat? Like, what do I have to do tomorrow? <laughs> like we're, we're doing it and all these like weird thoughts are going through our head, you know, and, and encounter encounter this sort of non-immersive thought experience of sex as well. Huh. Interesting, man. So have you examined this, this sexual policing much throughout history? Obviously, today we have a softer and kind of more assumed oppression of sexuality, whereas in previous centuries, it was much more obvious and aggressive, right? In some ways, yes. And in, in, in some ways, no. I mean, there's sometimes I look around and I'm like, wow, things are really like worse than they, <laughs> than they've been. Really? Now I'm not talking about, yeah, I mean, sure. I'm not talking about like the Inquisition. Like it's not, it's not worse in that sense, but I think that there's a whole lot of, um, the, there's a whole lot of push and pull between what people feel they can say, what people feel they can talk about, what people feel they can do. I mean, have you, if you've read a code of conduct manual on a college campus, like hmm. that shit is crazy when it comes to sexual encounters. Right. It's like, you need to say, you know, can I touch your thigh? Yes. Can I touch your hair? Yes. Can I touch? <laughs> and any violation of that is considered sexual assault because the people again in power who have the money are trying to cover their 
butts, so they're not sued. And so, you know, when I talk about that, when I go to colleges and talk about consent, I'm like, did you guys consent to having a threesome with the author of the code of conduct manual for, (laughs) for your school? Because that person's present every time you have sex, you know? (laughs) So in some ways, I feel like there's this weird thought invasion when it comes to sex that is really pervasive. I mean, at least in different times, it was like, Okay, you're going like you're going to hell. You know, it was pretty like sort of blanketed in some sort of metaphysics. Now it's this whole weird, elaborate, complex thing about what you can and cannot do that really worries me. Yeah. So and 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 it's it's important to note like the moment for sexual freedom is always precarious. Like there's not a moment where we rest and everything's fine. I don't think that's ever happened. <laughs> I think that it just sort of the oppression just has been shoved around into different, you know, spots. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. And let's talk a little bit about how the occult and sexuality relate. Obviously we have the parallel stories of oppression throughout history, but there's something deeper to this relationship too. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean, what do you have in mind when you say that? Are you talking about some of the satanic abuse stuff? Or are you talking about more of the positive side of it? Or? Definitely more of the positive side. Because when I say like historically parallel stories of oppression, I mean from the top to the people regarding both their sexuality and magical exploration. Mm-hmm. But also we could probably talk about the symbolic aspects in that regard, the union of opposites, the transmutation of spiritual alchemy, chakras. There's a lot of people in the esoteric philosophy camps who talk about some symbolic aspects or energetic aspects that can be kind of interesting. And there might be some symbolism there surrounding sex and magic worth exploring. But as far as the negative stuff, let's just table that. We've done enough qualifying at this point, and I think we've seen enough smoke to know there's fire in the case of child abuse among the elite, and nobody here is trying to justify that. But I want to have a conversation more centered around the people and aspects that might mean something to us personally, more so than what's going on behind the curtain. That's been talked about plenty. Let's talk about things that people can either use in their life or at least reflect upon, and in particular, people who might have occult interests as well, if that sounds good. Yeah, well, so my my sort of understanding of the occult, I always try to bring it back to, like, if you just sort of pay attention to your experience, you'll understand that things are a lot weirder than you thought. <laughs> and, and, and if you want to interpret the weirdness of your experience, you need the occult to do that. So let's just break it down to something very simple that I'm sure a lot of your listeners has done, which is masturbate. Um, Guilty. And, and, and I'll, and I'll talk about the bridge, the bridge here. So I'm going to talk about male masturbation because it's the kind I'm the most acquainted with. <laughs> um, and I've, you know, maybe you've acquainted yourself with this a few times today, dear listener, <laughs> but, but basically Think about how weird it is that (laughs) when you masturbate, you either watch pornography or you're imagining pornographic scenes, right? So you're creating pornography and you're, so you're merging your imaginative world or symbolic artistic imagery. You're bringing those into contact with a very simple repetitive motion. And after about five to 10 minutes, half the substance that creates life comes out of your body. Like that's completely bizarre. <laughs> that it is. The sort of sealing of the imagined or symbolic realm and the physical realm in a very rudimentary way has this tremendous 
effect. And, and let's, you know, not just the procreative effect, um, or potentially procreative effect, but also just the way it feels in your body, the thing that happens to you in that moment. That's really crazy <laughs> if you think about it. It is. So that's, if you just start from there, if you just start by looking at your everyday experiences, when you have sex, what exactly is going on? Um, why is it this bizarre, you know, why do we, why do we talk during sex? For example, why does a sound that has, that translates itself into a meaning in our minds amplify the feeling we have in our bodies? You notice that mind body connection really intensely during the sexual act. And that definitely has an occult aspect. When I was a teenager, I could just have a thought about a sexual thing. Or, or, or it didn't even really have to be sexual. Like it could just be an algebra class and my body would respond like I would get a hard on or whatever. What is up with that? So you start noticing that bridge between the worlds in sexuality. It's very obvious in sex. So that's the first place I would go. Um, so we don't have to start talking about metaphysics or anything like that. We just talk about phenomenology or basically the experiences that everybody has, you know? Mm-hmm. And it is a strange experience. I mean, the feeling of orgasm is really unlike anything. It's the heart of most comedy routines and every movie has a love story and a lot of sex in it. It is just such a part of life and we really try to pretend that it isn't. I guess you could say one of the connections between the occult and sex is it's both the things we keep hidden from uh, our public persona. <laughs> totally. And not only is it like such a big part of life, it is life itself. I mean... It's like, you know, sex is everybody's creation story. So that's the called version. It's like everybody has their own personal big bang, you know, <laughs> as it were. Mm. So before you existed, I mean, just think, think of like weird creation myths if you've ever read them. They basically sound like people having sex. Like, okay, before time existed and space existed, two giant beings came together, entangled their bodies, and suddenly a world was born, and that world was you. Like, that's really strange. <laughs> also, if you think about it. So it's you just start sort of breaking these things down. And also, and, and note, like, you know, sex is going to run through everything we do. You don't have to be a Freudian to believe that. You just have to notice, like, I'm actually a composite I'm the result of a sexual act. So it's going to follow me through my entire life. And for me to not think that is, you know, would be naive. Mm -hmm. Man. And, and one of your writings, you also refer to sex as an altered state. And I could not help but agree with that. It's probably the connective tissue between sex, magic, and drugs or psychedelics. It's all about exploring altered states. And when a population is doing that, I guess they're way harder to control. Totally. You do conscious exploration. And that's why. So I love what you just said, because it's reminding me that one of the reasons sex is so regulated and so contained in marketing and legislation schemes is because it doesn't allow us to think about it. Again, the kind of sex we are, quote unquote, supposed to have or have been brainwashed into thinking we should have is completely immersive sex. You know, it's like kind of sex where two people stumble into a hotel room in a movie and like smash over the lamp on the nightstand, tearing each other's clothes off. That's not what most sex is like. <laughs> it's, it can be like that, which is, and it's fun when it's like that, but that's a version of things. 
But we're told if that doesn't happen, we've done it the wrong way, that we should feel guilty about it if it's not with someone we're passionately in love with, all that kind of stuff. And so as a result, we don't really get to think about sex. We have one kind of sex or we feel guilty about it. And the feelings of guilt and shame and confusion overwhelm our ability to analyze, think about, consider the things. And so in that sense, we're denied exploration of altered states of consciousness. Imagine having sex with someone you're not attracted to for eight hours. <laughs> now, that's what porn performers do. Very often, <laughs> we're asked to perform sex with somebody that we're not attracted to for hours on end while other people are standing around recording the event. That teaches you a lot about the experience of intertwining with somebody else because you get to be reflective. There's time to think. There's time to consider. It's not overwhelmed by passion. It's actually very athletic. You have to be in a different zone. And so that's where I've learned a lot of these lessons about sex. And I think a lot of sex workers in general learn sort of new lessons about sex that are hidden from us. Again, by people trying to sell us a certain version of it. <laughs> yeah, man. I really hadn't thought about it that way, but I guess it's just another day at the office for you in some regards. <laughs> in there. But I do think it's kind of interesting. Like, okay, let me ask you, because you've had sex with thousands of people and the more experience <laughs> you have with something, the deeper understanding of it you have. That said, in a lot of areas of study, broadly speaking, there's usually some fairly standard evolution of thought when you've looked at a subject for, say, 10 years versus five years versus one year, do you think your sexual understanding has had those types of milestones? And could you share maybe some insights you've gotten at those higher levels that a lot of us just aren't going to reach? Yeah, sure. I mean, and just to sort of reference what you're saying, I mean, some uh, about having sex with lots of people, I think people sort of fancy themselves sexual experts, right? Like you have spiritual gurus and neuroscientists and second wave feminists and whatever, just talking about sex as if they know what they're talking about. And I'm always like, how many people have you had sex with? And they're like 10. I'm like, I'm sorry, it's just not going to cut it. Like you're not an expert. You can be an expert in your own sexuality. Everybody's an expert in their own sexuality because that's just you. But to be an expert in sex, you got to have a lot of sex. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is just how it goes. And you've got to have different kinds of sex. You've got to have different kinds of partners. And in some ways, one could argue that I'm a total beginner when it comes to like heterosexual sex. However, I don't think that's true. I think that you have to have tons of, you just have to have tons of sex and observe what happens to you and your body in those times and, and your thoughts in those times to begin to become an expert about the sexual experience. So what I think is, you know, over time with the sort of accumulation of experiences that I've had, I've definitely learned some of the stuff that I talked about before that sex has a sort of thought aspect that needs to be paid attention to, that sex has a sort of detachment aspect that can be really healthy when you say, oh, um, my body is doing this right now. And you, you start sort of getting in this observational space when you're having sex that can give you something really special. But what those boil down to is that intimacy is impersonal. What do I mean by that? I mean, intimacy is like it's something that we create with other people and that we can create at any time. Um, and that's something that, again, I learned from being scheduled to have sex with somebody at a certain time for a certain length of time, all that kind of stuff. 
I show up on the set and it's somebody that I'm not into and I have to find my way in, no pun intended. <laughs> I have to find my way into that sexual experience. So I have to find something and generate my own attraction to that person. So I seek through my head, okay, well, I'm going to be attracted to this or this or this. Over a certain period of time, you begin to understand that you can really do that with anybody if you want. And it, it's not something that I necessarily recommend to everybody, but I just want to call out this culture that sort of lazily depends on um, chemistry to sort of carry you through the sexual experience. Oh, I have to be attracted to the person. I have to. No, no, no. You actually create that experience. It's not just sitting there waiting for you. You're generating it. And that was a lesson of that cultural revolution you were talking about um, with hippies and stuff like that. Like they just decided to go for it. You know, <laughs> love is free. I'm going to mm-hmm. I'm going to generate this kind of loving feeling for other people. That's another reason why sex is like really threatening to people in power, because you start like realizing that you can generate intimacy and chemistry with anybody that you want. And suddenly you don't want to go and like kill people anymore. You just want to have sex with them. It's like, oh, we can just have this kind of relationship with each other instead of like and and settle it that way in some giant sexual potlatch instead of having, you know, an orgy of war with each other instead. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. And you know, on the subject of control schemes, I've been just thinking about this a lot and trying to get ready for the show and to touch on the subject of raising children in the traditional family model, which is something conspiracy people are kind of obsessed with a certain section of them, that traditional nuclear family. There are conspiratorial arguments that much of what the elite do is an attack on that. But there are also arguments that by pushing the idea that these two person man woman couplings is the only acceptable way to live, you make people far more controllable, especially if you make them solely responsible for their dependence and then they're locked into a hamster wheel job for most of their lives. This is a way of kind of looking at that nuclear family as an ancient control scheme to an extent, couldn't you say? Yeah, I think that... um... I think that if any of those pro-nuclear family people are still listening at this point, (laughs) I just want to say, like, I totally respect people's right to um, and and desire even to have that kind of family unit. I think they might want to investigate why that's important to them and come up with real reasons other than just like, that's just what I want. That's what my parents did. That's what I, you know, I think investigate that. But I'm, I'm sympathetic to wanting to have whatever kinds of relationships you want to have and feeling that those things might be assaulted, eroded by the culture that we live in. I think like go for it and understand that you should not be enforcing that kind of cultural control and erosion toward anyone else's kind of relationship either. That's all I ask. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I think it's, it's pretty simple. Identify that people in power are trying to regulate the kinds of relationships we have. This is actually something that I and a lot of a lot of gay people, although this is not known by most straight people at the time, why a lot of us oppose gay marriage. I mean, we're totally against it. And it was not part of the general cultural conversation. It was because it was like, look, I don't I don't care. I mean, if people if people want to get married, like go for it. But like, why is this conversation you know, we, we oppose this conversation, I should have said. We oppose this conversation that leaves out all the people that really don't give a fuck about getting married 
But more to the point, we don't give a fuck about getting married because that means that the state then intercedes, invades, and has control over the kinds of relationships we're supposed to have. And we have to get like a state approved stamp on our relationship. And not only that, like it has consequences for the people that don't want that state approved relationship. And so all those people are demonized. They don't get the same rights as we do. And it's all because it's all because the people who are married and getting married are enforcing and supporting state control and power because they're entering into the model that the state says is cool. And so that is you know, our, our entire economic system is based on a certain kind of relationship. And so if you want to look at how you're reinforcing and supporting power structures, look no further than the kinds of relationships that you have with each other. Those are playing into the state's hands, you know, in a lot of ways. Right. I mean, you're talking to a guy who's getting married in 30 days. So, yeah. <laughs> like I said, I'm down, man. Like I think if people have weddings, have love ceremonies, have commitment ceremonies, do all that kind of stuff. It's just be, you know, have something more in your conversation when you talk about it publicly. That's why I'm always like, dude, like you guys, like you two, you know, Brian and Brian, go get married to each other. I don't care. Just make sure you tell people that like it's not the only kind of relationship that's available or that needs to be had in our culture. And that's a fair point. A lot of it, like you mentioned, is related to economics. You have to get a partner to get through this life because you can't do it alone. I mean, you can, but it's much harder. But okay, so this is going to get a little raw, man. I'm going to get honest, but you tell me if I'm wrong. So I've been hearing a couple different sex freedom advocates saying that Monogamy is ridiculous and we should explore more partners in our lives and maybe be more open to sexual exploration and experimentation. And I got no issues with that perspective, really. But I think about two things. One, maybe homosexual men have a greater tendency to feel that way because they have less potential consequences than heterosexual sex. Because if I get three different women pregnant, my life is pretty much fucked in this society. And number two, if you're gay, then the procreation aspects of sex go away and your dick is just a fun stick. And I get that. <laughs> but gay men also don't have to deal with the female psychology, which I think is different and I think wants different things. Maybe it's manipulated to a degree as well. But I wonder how applicable those ideas are to a largely straight society. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think... <laughs> They have to be at, they have to be applicable because people cheat on each other all the time. So <laughs> it's time it's time to look at the fact that people who say they're monogamous very often are not. And if you're listening to this show and you say you are total pro monogamy, but you have cheated on your partner, you are not pro monogamy. That's <laughs> hypocritical. Yes, and it's not just because you're a hypocrite. It's just look at who you are and say like. What happened in that moment? What pressures was I feeling? You know, cultural pressures, not just relational pressures. Like, what was I feeling in that moment that said I couldn't do this? Why could I not talk to my partner about what I wanted? All that kind of stuff, right? I think monogamy is, again, monogamy is fine as long as we recognize it as one of the great widespread sexual perversions of our time. It is pretty, pretty intense to live with someone for the rest of your life yeah. and hold yourself in a place of withholding repressive sexual elation. Like, oh, I just get to be with my partner. That's a perversion. And I don't, 
I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, far be it from me to call perversions bad. Mm-hmm. I just think it's like you, you have to recognize that there's something that you're eroticizing about that. That is a sexual thing that you're doing. And so if we do that and we say, okay, well, that's my preferred, you know, thing. I, I like that feeling of frustration withholding all that kind of stuff. Then go ahead. If you're unhappy in that, then, you know, and it's not, it's, it's messing you up. You might want to reconsider it because the fact is, and, and I'll, I'll point it in the other direction too. The fact is that most people are monogamous, I think, because they're insecure about their partner leaving them. Most people are open because they're afraid of commitment. And it needs to be that you enter into the relating model you have with your partner intentionally, not out of a knee-jerk reaction or cultural pressure. How many people do that? I mean, that's very rare that people are like, okay, this is actually what I've decided and my partner have decided we want with each other very intentionally. There's been a deep discussion about it. And we've decided, you know, understand all these options are available to you that we don't even think about. Like with my partner, it's like, okay, let's be monogamous this month. Um, and then next month we'll do something else. Or you can say to your partner, let's be monogamous, you know, and, and revisit the conversation, revisit this conversation every six months. You can say, let's be monogamous for a day. It doesn't have to be a lifelong thing. You can move in and out of these states. It's kind of like being vegetarian, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> do, do what, do what is healthy for you in that moment. And then you can revert and have a, have a cheat day, so to speak, you know, <laughs> whatever. There are lots of versions that are available, but you should do it what you really want, what you truly want. And that in, entails investigating what you want. Now, I didn't really answer your question about <laughs> do the gay things apply to straight people or whatever. I can still do that, but I just talked a lot. So I'll back off for a second <laughs> and see if you want to engage any of that stuff. Well, that's really all I was going to reiterate is like, obviously nothing's impossible and people can find ways to live in many different nuanced ways. But I think it's easier for two guys to have that type of paradigm that you're discussing of like flipping monogamy on and off than it is for a man and woman. One, because if there's kids involved, first off, the psychology between men and women is so different already. Just trying to make it work in a simple fashion is difficult. I mean, it's a cliche joke. Everybody's heard that when people get frustrated dealing with the opposite sex, they're like, well, I'm just going to go gay and simplify this because I can't understand that opposite sex. Everybody's heard that joke. And there's some truth there is it's very difficult. So managing just that sexual relationship that's supposed to last a long time, let's say in a marriage is hard to add those elements where you have now two different psychologies that are dealing with jealousy and different issues like that. If they have kids, obviously that can split up families. And when, when families are split up, kids are affected in this modern world. Of course, there's other ways to do that too. It takes a village to raise a kid. Indigenous cultures and tribes have been doing it that way with great success. So they say, but in our culture, Kids who go through divorced families often do have issues growing up, and people also can grow up with issues. It really isn't going to kill you. But again, I just think there's that difference. I think it might be easier for two guys. Yeah, I mean, I think you'll find out whether or not this is a compulsive thing or an intentional thing for you in your relationship, in your heterosexual relationship, by simply asking yourself right now, what if I brought this up to my partner? (laughs) 
So ask yourself inwardly, what if I said, um, sweetheart, what if we had an open relationship? And if you find yourself thinking there's no way in hell I could talk to Cheryl about that or whatever, you'll find, you'll find yourself like, oh, it's actually not about like what's available to us. It's about me not being able to speak because you should at least be able to have the conversation. So I just want to say that I, I don't want to get into um, I, we, you and I could talk about it for hours, so I don't really want to get into whether or not there is an essential female or male psychology. I don't think there is, hmm. but I think that that's, to, to, to be honest, it's a conversation that is happening like on every other podcast in the world right now. And to me, it's a, it's a little, it's a little boring and there. it's really, really polarizing in a way that it's like, I'd rather just talk about the other interesting things about what you said. So I think any kind of relationship can work. As long as the communication is available and no relationship will work if it's not. So those are the kinds of questions to ask yourself about. Like, am I able to communicate with my partner? Am I able to show, like, show up with a what if scenario without everything falling apart? And if you can't, you have an issue. And that I think is like the basis of a lot of problems in our culture when it comes to sex in general, which is we're not allowed to even discuss it. We're not allowed to talk about our fantasy. We're not allowed to even like say, hey, uh, you know, I'm not going to act on this, but I imagine it. In other words, there is a cultural demand that we not even imagine certain things. And that is hugely problematic. And that, again, is about the war against consciousness. No, that's well said. And I do agree with you. It's like, is your relationship really based on complete trust, openness and honesty or are there huge blacked out areas where you cannot go with the person that you are tied to for the rest of your life, you know, on paper? And yeah, that is an issue if you can't broach certain subjects with them. You know, something else I was interested in going through just all the areas where occultism and sexuality intersect. And I'm kind of intellectually intrigued by these schools of thought. That by foregoing orgasm completely, you can actually reach other sorts of enlightened states. Uh, I don't think I'd ever have the discipline, but have you ever looked into that <laughs> realm or anything like that? Yeah, well, there's, there's, well, it's not usually orgasm. I thought of as orgasm. It's ejaculation is the more common. Fair. And there is a difference. Yes. Yeah, so men are not supposed to ejaculate because it reaches like blah, blah, this, this thing called carissa. Um, I think it's fundamentalist nonsense. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying don't experiment with it. I'm just saying when you look into Cruza and you look at some of the people who uh, hype it up, a lot of what they're talking about has a moral component. And that's what I find really problematic that people are like, oh, well, you're just so much nicer in your relationship and you blah, 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 blah. I mean, I just think that that's I, – I, I find that like – to be an issue. I don't find a problem with people experimenting with it. I just like, mostly when I read that kind of stuff, it's like, we're not sex negative people. Um, and we, we just think, we just think that you need to do this because you'll be nicer, happier, have a better life and blah, blah. <laughs> it's like, okay, you're basically moralizing about the thing that you say you're not moralizing about. And it's always supposed to, very often you also see these things are supposed to take place between two partners, uh, like, or a partner in a committed relationship. And so I just, you know, if people can point me to better instances of that where people are talking about it in a really 
sort of free, liberated way, I'd be totally open to checking it out. I just don't see it in that context very much. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I, I know, I know abstinence worked for George Costanza in a Seinfeld episode, but I don't know how applicable that is for everybody. Uh-huh. Um, well, well, let me ask you just about sex magic or tantric practices of any kind. Have you, have you combined your interests in the occult and sexuality in any significant way that might be interesting to people? It's funny, man, like people and, and so I, I want people to take this away from this podcast too. People ask me about, do I do sex magic all the time? And I don't. And the reason why is because sex is magic. I don't need to turn it into something. I don't need to utilize it. I just need to, again, all the stuff I was talking about before, pay attention to what's happening in the sexual experience. A lot of sex magic works on the principle that you're just sort of paying attention to what happens in your body and somehow um, importing kinds of meaning to the occult meaning to all these things that are happening in your body. It's like, man, I do that when I have sex anyway. Mm-hmm. And if you do that when you have sex anyway, sex will become magic in your life. I'll tell you, like, nothing will push your consciousness forward, like paying attention to the sex you have, having more sex, and being open to new sexual experiences. That is the shit that will bring you up on a chain of human progression of consciousness. (laughs) So just do that, and you don't need to, like, you know, light a black candle and, like, you know, paint a snake on your back before you have sex with your partner or whatever. Like, you can just, uh, you can just get there by having, you know, lots of pleasure and paying attention to what's going on. Hmm. And what do you think would be some of the benefits of doing that that might not be obvious to people? How would it affect other areas of your life if you really were to be serious and nailed down trying to get deeper into your own sexuality? Yeah. Okay. So here's a really good, here's a, here's a good example from my life. Um, so I, like many people was a sexual racist. And what do I mean by that? <laughs> and people have a real problem with this. Like I was only attracted to a certain kind of guy of a certain ethnicity, right? Like they were white or they were, uh, Arab like me. So I'm half Irish. My mom's, my mom's Irish. My dad's from Syria. So half Irish and half Arab. And so I wasn't attracted to black guys or Asian guys or whatever. And by allowing myself to enter into the sex work scenarios that I did where I had to have sex with people where it was like not just the people that I preferred, that began to unlock my ability to sexualize people and be attracted to people who were not just white dudes or Arab dudes or white Arab dudes or whatever. And as a result, nothing allows you to really humanize people like being attracted to them. It's the exact opposite of what people say, like, oh, sexualizing someone or eroticizing someone or it's objectification. And that means dehumanization. Quite the contrary. Like when you allow somebody into your sort of erotic ideas, erotic space, like they become more human to you in a huge way. And I think it's just fine that this is true. That doesn't mean that there's no problems. That doesn't mean that we, that we see somebody as a completely human just because we're attracted to them. I mean, obviously like men treat women like shit, like, you know, across the board. However, it means that you've opened up some space for yourself to relate to that person as another human being. Whereas before it was like, you know, my, my racism, like my, all the little like pieces of my racism started just falling away as I became more and more attracted to people of different races. Now I'm, 
I can, I'm attracted to everybody. I mean, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I mean, I'm not attracted to everybody, but I can be attracted to everybody and people of all sort of different kinds of bodies and, you know, different races, all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm much more, much more present with them as a person and they're much more present for me as people. So a lot of just my dumb bullshit went away by eroticizing more people. Hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> sex is a teacher. That's what I try to say. It's like, you know, sex is a mystery. And by that, I mean, you'll always learn more from it than you can learn about it. It's always going to be one step ahead of you. So follow it. Don't pretend you have a handle on it because you do not. Sex is bigger than you. It made you. It's always going to be ahead of you. It existed before you were born, the moment before you were created. So it's always going to be one step ahead. So follow it to where it takes you and try to understand and learn from and listen to it. I think that's sound advice. So I also wanted to ask you about your courses because you've done a couple of them. And I was reading some of the material from your last one. And you mentioned part of the curriculum relating to uncovering the hidden history of evolutionary biology and showing how our current ideas of selfish genes, natural competition, and random genetic mutation are really just capitalist economics in disguise. And that sounds provocative to me, man. I'm always willing to uh, paint the target firmly on capitalism. But let me have you explain or elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that. Yeah, well, I mean, a big part of that is just... First of all, historically looking at the reception of Darwinism and how it appeared in different countries. So in Russia, surprise, surprise, Darwinism was taken up and used in this current of understanding symbiosis, um, the coming together of different beings to make collectives. <laughs> in Europe, it was turned into this sort of more and more selfish, reductionist, neo-Darwinist thing that we have right now. In Japan, it became this sort of more holistic uh, version of evolution. It, it changes in culture, and, you know, they are sort of almost stereotypical, the way that the sciences have been received, especially the biological sciences. There's not a totalized version of what people believe in when it comes to evolution or what scientists believe. They all accept that natural selection plays a role in evolution. So that is not disputed. But whether that is related, you know, whether that combines itself with random genetic mutation, symbiosis, laws of form and mathematics, um, these things all play out differently from culture to culture, what receives the emphasis and the understanding. So I think it's important to note that, of course, the Western countries that have capitalist economic systems (laughs) are the ones that... Uh, promote something called a selfish gene, which works by trying to preserve itself through a sort of weird anthropomorphized cost-benefit analysis. And you can look at these things. I mean, it's a pretty obvious when you start comparing how that framework of genetics is or of evolution overlays and speciation overlays with the economic system. So I think it's up to us to decide which version of evolution we think is best upheld by the evidence. I think, and partially because I studied with Lynn Margulies, who was the sort of leading researcher in symbiosis, and she developed a a system of evolution based on, um, and, and speciation based on symbiosis, 
I tend to believe that the evidence is stronger for the factor of symbiosis than random genetic mutation, which I think is probably not so important, um, as important as we think it is. Random genetic mutation probably has resulted in some speciation, but it's more likely in my idea to be related to adaptation. I think that you combine these things together. I think Lynn probably overemphasized symbiosis because that was her shtick. You know, that was her understanding of evolution. But you add in things like laws of form. There's a really interesting evolutionary work being done in Germany by people who have taken up Goethe's form of science and who are interested in Rudolf Steiner but may not even really be that interested in him. There's a guy named Brian Goodwin who did all this stuff that's kind of similar to it but brings in a lot of mathematics. There's a book called Evolution in Four Dimensions that explores how these different versions of evolution intersect to create speciation. And there is, of course, Bruce Lipton, who you've had on, who talks about um, how certain thoughts begin to interact with <laughs> with laws of form and, and morphology. And not only that, we have a resurgence of understanding that Lamarck, who was the sort of dismissed, laughed at, biologist, his theories where the passing down of acquired characteristics actually might have some weight and validity to them. Um, we definitely saw it in amoeba. For instance, there was a, a, a scientist who had this sort of tray of amoeba in his lab, and they all became infected. And instead of throwing those amoeba away, which is what everybody else would have done, he decided to keep them and study them. And what he discovered was if he pulled he pulled the infecting organism out of these um, amoeba that he had, they would die. But if he left it in, they would live, right? And so that's one version of symbiosis happening in the lab. But there's another version that relates to Lamarck a little more directly, where if you took out the cilia of this certain organism and reinserted them in backwards, uh, eventually those organisms would start producing quote-unquote offspring that had the sort of backwards cilia. So that shows that Lamarck was probably correct. And then combine that with the amoeba thing, and you see how that could be happening with symbiosis as well. So I think there's a lot of like good evidence for other versions of evolution happening that have been observed in laboratories, but it's just because they happened with either bacteria or protoctus, also known as protozoa, that we dismiss it because people like Richard Dawkins only know about animals, which is, of course, not most, most organisms are not, the, you know, the, the, the most populous organisms on the planet are not animals, they're bacteria. And so, you know, for him to sort of claim that all evolution works on this level, you know, that we understand, that he understands is, I mean, it seems a little preposterous to me. And I know he, He's gone to different lengths in other books. I don't mean to just pick on him. He's actually my sort of out of my out of all those sort of new atheist scientist kind of people that are like my least favorite people in the world. He's my least least favorite, I should say. <laughs> like I, I like him the most out of all the people that I don't like. But I do think that sort of group of people that promote neo-Darwinism, which is just natural selection meets random genetic mutation, they're outdated. Mm -hmm. And they just, they need, <laughs> they need to catch up. And who am I to say? I'm a lay person, although I did study science in grad school for three years. So I could talk about these things with some sense of authority or knowledge of what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Well, you're right. There's so many interesting studies going on in the world of genes and the world of consciousness. And things are turning out differently than we 
have been led to believe they would. And I'm right there with you in terms of the selfish gene idea, because I very much look at incentives and try to think about what is natural versus what is a product of our environment. And it's really hard to extrapolate that out when the only environment you've ever known is super aggressive capitalist economics. You got to go look at other areas of the world. And we do. And we find some interesting things. I don't think if you look at some isolated pockets of indigenous cultures that they run on a principle of selfishness. They just don't. They'd all die. So they definitely come together. And I think it is a real convenient thing for capitalists to say like, oh, well, yeah, we got this greed problem in our system, but it's inborn. It's it's ingrained into us. It's a gene, you know, it's not a <laughs> right, it's not right. some kind of outpouring from our artificial system that incentivizes greed. No, it's natural. And yeah, I, I agree with you that I think that's wrong. I just I just do. And it's a recapitulation in that case of just original sin, right? Because Richard Dawkins writes about, well, we can transcend our genetic predisposition mm -hmm. and, and be nice to each other. Well, okay, so we're all sinners, but we can transcend that by confessing or, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like seeking forgiveness or finding Christ and get out of the sin. It's like, it's the same narrative. Mm -hmm. And I, so I just think it's, it, it's, you know, he's done a lot. He, why, why I'm sort of like, hesitating a little bit is he's done a lot to confront the views that should dethrone his opinion and he should know better but he holds on to the same opinion again and again and again and it's not because it's scientifically valid anymore it's just not i mean i don't know that most biologists even take him or people like jerry coin seriously anymore i think a lot of them a lot of evolutionary biologists have just moved on and just been like all right i guess if you guys just want to present that picture there's some overlap with what we believe in, so go ahead. And it's not creationism, so I guess just go for it, you know. But I don't think it's even necessarily widely believed in anymore. A lot of these other things are accepted as scientific fact at this point. So Right. Yeah, we're passing them up. And it is just a weird psychological thing that people love to take a perspective and then make that their identity. And then once they've done that, once they've accepted the label, it becomes very hard for them to pivot when they maybe change their opinion or are confronted with new information. I mean, I've been through the ringer with the things I've self-identified as, and I've learned to stop doing that because it's going to change. Right. <laughs> and I, I think that, yeah, I mean, some of those guys, they're just so rigid that they're not responding to new information. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, they're rigid because they're lively because they become rich, you know, based on their ideas. It's yeah. like, they're not going to give that up. You know, it's how they make their money. Although, you know, they could continue to make money by sort of rolling with it, but you know, they, they've, they've planted a stake in the ground. And I think that's when they become charismatic gurus instead of scientists, you know, it's like, man, live up to the standard, which you demand of others. And, you will come across new information that alters your view, that alters the things you say in significant structural ways and not just these sort of like little ways here and there from book to book that you change, you know. Maybe you're not going to make as much money you used to make, but you will be making the world a better place and you'll be advancing the thing that you claim to passionately care about and not 
give fuel to the religious fundamentalists who, after all, are very often just picking on the very real flaws in the narrative of evolution that you presented. Their solutions and their ideas of what's going on are wrong and stupid, but their critiques are actually very often correct. So <laughs> it's it's like you're giving them fuel to sound smarter because you're not shoring up the problems with your theory. Yeah, and that's well said too. And man, <laughs> this has been a fun ride. I know we're starting to wind down here, but I'm all about extracting insight from people who've had much different experiences than me. So I think this is all interesting. And again, you've got this event coming up on July 8th with Gordon White in the City of Angels that centers around why the occult matters now more than ever. Can you give us some insight into that question or the things that you're going to be talking about? Why does the occult matter now more than ever? So the reason why the occult matters now more than ever isn't because the occult is somehow better than it ever was, although I do think it's improving with development and research. However, we're in a time where people's worldviews are falling apart left and right for a lot of reasons. There are political expectations. There were expectations of materialism to produce certain results. And both of those things have you know, sort of been pulled away <laughs> from, from the stage. There's lots of things that are changing in the world um, related to technology, related to relationships, related to our understanding even of basic things like time and space. And the occult has always tried to approach these things with a sense of seriousness and has been in development for hundreds of years. And it's just sort of waiting for its moment. <laughs> and I think now is that moment. I think now when people are finding a void in their lives where their political expectations, relational expectations, expectations of how the world was supposed to go used to be, I think that this is the perfect moment. And I think that the occult addresses individuality on a level that other systems don't. So we don't have to be uh, absorbed into some amorphous, collective, economic identity. I think that it allows people to feel empowered and truly are empowered. It allows people to uh, approach the world spiritually as well as practically. I think there's a lot going on for the occult in this moment. And that doesn't mean that the occult is going to be some great, perfect system that heals everything and makes the world a beautiful, perfect place. It's not. It has its own problems. And we're going to discover what those problems are as more and more people get involved in it. Um, and some of those problems are going to be as real and drastic as the problems that we face today, if not worse. However, I'm sick of these old problems. Um, <laughs> I want new ones, you know? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm so sick of the old problems too. But this has been a lot of fun. I I'm really glad we could do it. Before we really do close it out, remind people where they can keep tabs on you and what else you got going on. And of course, this new show, Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Okay, great. Um, so... My new big project is this web series against everyone with Connor Abib, and it's a show about ideas. So every month there are at least two episodes. One episode is me giving a little mini lecture about something. So the first episode is me talking about pleasure and political resistance and how those two things meet. And I bring up this utopian thinker, Charles Fourier, and his sort of crazy, wacky ideas and how they can make culture better right now if we, if we, if we think into them. And one episode, at least one episode, is me in conversation with somebody. So we have great guests coming up, like Abby Martin and Gordon White and Ted Leo and people all across the spectrum, musicians, writers, journalists, artists, 
all that kind of stuff. And you can subscribe to the uh, YouTube channel, of course, but you can also support it by going to my Patreon. And if you support on my Patreon, if you pay a dollar, you can get downloadable audio. If you pay $5, you get an extra episode every month. You can get things like you can join the book club that I've started um, where we meet once a month, talk about a book. You can get Skype sessions with me, all that kind of stuff if you support the show through my Patreon. So that's patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib, C-O-N-N-E-R-H-A-B-I-B. Or you can just watch the show. I mean, you can you can do that too. And the only social media I have is my Twitter, which is just at Connor Habib. And that's a good place to engage with me, see my butt, and also uh, deal with my bombastic, I- idiotic Twitter rants. They're really fun. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Well, Connor, thanks again. Hopefully we might meet somewhere in the chaos that is July, but either way, keep fighting the good fight. <laughs> right on, man. And congratulations uh, on your, on your wedding. I didn't oh, mean to you do don't mean it. Against it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, man. All right. Take care. You too. There it is, people. Connor Habib, our first porn star on the podcast. All right. I'm already bracing for impact on a few of the things he said, but I still think there is a lot I'm in agreement with him on, especially his point about needing to have open conversations about sex so that we can actually get to a point where we can have a conversation about the darkness that exists that a lot of people often can't talk about. We might be able to, but we got to widen that sphere. And you can see how there might be a connection here, right? I definitely can. And things have obviously gotten a lot better since the day of chastity belts and selling your daughter for a milk cow, but I can see why Connor thinks we have a long way to go too. Although our culture is kind of backwards and there's definitely a lot of judgment, which you're never going to be able to control, I don't know what a person could want to do sexually that they can't do today, or at least see on the internet. But I suppose we should probably bring it out of the shadows and stop thinking of it as such a dirty thing overall. It's just skin. And I can hear the clasping of pearls right now, but honestly, look at some ancient Egyptian or Greek artwork, and it makes you think, like, are we really less sophisticated in dealing with sex than people were centuries ago? That's weird. And if you've seen a movie like Equilibrium, one of my favorite dystopian films, then you know that in a true totalitarian regime, you're going to have a crackdown on art on anything that invokes emotion or passion, and of course, sex. If you've seen a show like The Handmaiden's Tale, which has a terrible name but is one of my favorite shows out right now, it's all about the oppression and sexual weirdness in a 1984 dystopia-type environment. It's great. You should definitely check it out. And let those things be your guide if you think parts of this conversation might have been a little extreme. Something Connor said that I did really like was that no one has a right to violate a person's boundaries, but we also have a responsibility to investigate our own. And I think that's very well said. And I agree because I got in a lot of trouble when I was younger and I got kicked out of the private school I went to with the friends I had essentially since kindergarten. So it wasn't a pleasant experience to be thrust into the local public school my senior year But it ended up working out great, and I actually had positive relationships with the teachers and staff that allowed me to actually amp up my class clown stuff and the ridiculous things I would do for attention, for better or worse. The very stuff that got me kicked out of private school. 
And some of the teachers here were just actually entertained by it because I guess public schools have real problems. They know who the real troubled kids are. And because it was a different set of boundaries, I actually found that I wasn't that bad of a guy. And I could actually have a lot of fun, express myself as eccentrically as I felt I needed at the time. And it was all still pretty much within what was acceptable. And that was a real, whoa, type of moment. And then I ended up driving a bunch of guys down to the school that kicked me out. And we held signs up that said St. Pius is a prison and Fox is a daycare as the parents picked up kids and everyone was leaving. And that was embarrassing for the school, not for me. But yes, I think people can be dicks and press our buttons or do something we're affected by. But if nobody is seriously hurt, the best solution is always just to shrug your shoulders and move on when you see something you don't like. Developing a thicker skin is really just a win-win. Less things are going to bother you and less people have to be punished for bothering you. I don't know what I'm talking about, but it was fun to have a conversation with someone who's had such an interesting career, even if we agree to disagree in some areas. And do check out Connor and Gordon's event in LA if you can. I'm going to try to come, but you're more likely to see me if you're going to be at Gordon's premium member drinking meetup. I don't really know anything about it, except it's a few days earlier, which works much better for me. So in the plus show today, it's pretty great. In fact, I almost wish the two hours were flipped because the second hour is way more THC-like. We got into Connor's experiences and thoughts about the occult outside of the sexual sphere. Connor described what has been a useful meditation exercise in his experience for improving your mental visualization abilities. We went into the cliff notes of Rudolf Steiner's biography and the details of his intriguing accomplishments. Steiner's influence in Waldorf schools and the type of alternative education they offer from the industrialist-crafted Prussian control system we have now. We got into Steiner's anthroposophy, philosophy, and how and why it split from theosophy. Got into the ideas of the spirit world, the concept of the two spiritual beings, Ariman and Lucifer, the value and pitfalls of conspiracy culture, sex radicals of history and their impact, people like Wilhelm Reich and Ida Craddock pornography and its place in the world. And then, of course, my good buddy Kyle, he had a couple of occult questions for Connor that I thought were also interesting. So it was more about history and information about fringe people and their ideas. You know, that's always the sweet spot for me. And as far as higher side news goes, I finally worked out all the site issues, finally finished the server moves I'm going to be doing for a while. The RSS feed should be back working and updating again. And all is right with the world. I was actually caught up this month and going at a pretty good pace when the web issues knocked me off course. No point in finishing the edit when there's nowhere to put it when you're done and everyone's feet is broken. But we're good now. And we got another show coming tomorrow. So I'm out of here. Your move, oppressive regimes, personal activity, policers, and all-around stiflers of sexuality. Your fucking move. We're calling them out on THC Uncovering secrets and conspiracies Everybody's looking for something Some of them want to use you Some of them want to get used by you Some of them want to abuse you Some of them want to be a 